It is Friday, October the 21st, 2022. Welcome into episode 58 of Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It is a production of John Boy Media. It's David Cohn, it's James Smythe, and it is myself, Justin Shackle. And this and every episode throughout the playoffs is presented by Rap Soto. The Houston Astros have a 2-0 series lead in the ALCS over the New York Yankees as they head to New York for Game 3 on Saturday. Game three of the NLCS begins tonight with the Padres and the Phillies in Philadelphia. Series is tied at one game apiece there. Fellas, let's begin with the ALCS, and we can discuss the pitching in games one and two, but it is quite clear right now for the New York Yankees. They're having a tough time at the plate. They're not making contact. They're striking out a ton. How do they attempt to fix this against good Astros pitching? Well, not having to face Verlander and Valdez might help you know, because they're their two best uh, starters, uh, certainly um, some of the two best starters in the league, really. I mean, they both had fantastic years. So it was just a tall order. Framber Valdez had probably his best curveball of the year. I mean, he's not really a huge swing and miss guy. I mean, he has a decent strikeout rates. He's a, he's a good, great pitcher, obviously, more known for his quality starts than he is for his his ability to strike guys out, but he, he had that curveball working. He threw it over and over again, and it, nobody had an answer for it up and down the lineup. Valdez was locked in. And like you said, Cody, he's basically league average in striking out batters. But when you had that big hook working, the Yankees were one for 11 with seven strikeouts against Valdez's curve last night. In nine strikeouts total, seven against the curve and, and, the curveball has been working really well against this Yankees lineup through the first two games. Verlander had a pretty good curve going as well. The bullpen slashed good off-speed, good breaking pitches. And then uh, Valdez last night. And if you were tuning in and hearing the reaction from Yankee players, the Yankee clubhouse, they keep mentioning after game two how they need to make mid-at-bat adjustments, and especially with two strikes. They're going to win games if they hit home runs. But the, I guess the collective message was, well, we got to shorten up. Uh, overall, 30 of the 54 outs they've made in this series have come on strikeouts. It was a factor of, or a, a fact, I should say, of, of facing Verlander, Valdez, two of the best pitchers this season in the AAL, or is it the fact that maybe the Yankees potentially don't have the personnel to make those adjustments against elite Houston pitching. Which way do you sway more? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, anytime you see a manager scrambling to come up with a new lineup, it seems like uh, every other game that, that you know that the Yankees are short. Now that's no excuse. You, you, you do with what you have, but nonetheless, I mean, we're seeing shuffling and we're seeing a kid short start and a shortstop for his first postseason start, you know, in, in Peraza, we're seeing Bader batting lead off for the first time in his Yankee tenure. So that I admire Aaron Boone and I really believe this is really driven by him. Uh, you know, the analytics department, you know, as we know, really was very loyal to Isaiah kind of Falefa throughout the whole year. They still believe in him and their internal metrics are, are what they are. They really love his defense and that's fine. But this is Darren Boone. This is Aaron Boone uh, driving the bus on these changes. It was his idea to put Bader first. It was his idea to start Peraza at shortstop. It was his idea to put Cabrera at shortstop originally when, when Isaiah Kiner-Falefa originally was left uh, out of the starting lineup. So 
I, I admire it, but the fact that the, he, he's in this position, having to, to maneuver and come up with creative new ways, uh, shows you the, the state of the Yankees' offense right now. No, Lemayu, Carpenter's back, but you know he's kind of you know, not not fully back in terms of uh, you know being in midseason form or having a swing and all the rust that comes with all that time off. You know, it's certainly a factor, but. You know, they, people think that the, the lineups are handed down from above. I, I really sense that this is really manager driven. It was his choice to, to sit Isaiah kind of Leffa. I know he probably got some pushback uh, from some of the decision makers in the front office. So I give Aaron Boone credit here. Uh, don't, don't think twice. Managers still have some veto power and we've seen it with Aaron Boone in, in, in this, this playoff series. And sometimes good moves don't work out. The general thinking before game two is that these were all very good lineup changes. Oh, Bader's hot. Move him up to the leadoff spot. Lengthen the lineup with Torres moving down. Get Peraza in there. And they still got shut down by a very, very good pitcher. And as for the strikeouts, contrary to popular opinion, the Yankees are not a strikeout heavy team. They're pretty much right in the middle of the pack in strikeout rate as an offense. Same goes for this entire recent stretch of six straight playoff appearances for the Yankees. They're pretty much right in the middle of the pack in MLB, right around league average and strikeouts. They've had high strikeout guys, Judge and Stanton over the years. But they also have had low strikeout guys, DJ LeMahieu, Brett Gardner in years past. So the contact is an issue over these last two days, but I don't think it's more, it's much of a long-term structural problem. When you look at the results from games one and two, and we're going to go through each game quickly, but because David, you mentioned the the lineup structure and how Aaron Boone, you know, plays a hand in that. It, it you know he's looking pretty good putting in Oswald Peraza last night from from what we saw, and I think if you're a Yankee fan, you could almost have a sense of anger after watching Peraza make the type of plays that he made look as comfortable and crisp making those plays at shortstop, but that it didn't happen sooner and then when you take a look at what the bugaboo is for this yankee lineup through the first two games lack of contact josh donaldson kind of sticks out there when you take uh into consideration all these factors making a lineup for game three and you have to make a decision about maybe sitting donaldson down do you sacrifice donaldson's defense for more of a contact hitter and ikf where are you looking at in that department I think they're going to ride probably with Donaldson, although I'm sure everything's on the table with regards to that. And Donaldson did have a double and a walk in last night's game. So, yeah, I mean, he theoretically, if you look at his at-bats, he's getting good deep at-bats. You're still hoping that he can click one. He still has that ability. And if you look under the hood at his season, his exit velocity is still above average, still around 90 miles an hour. So he still does have some bat speed if he does catch up to one. And he is, he still has the ability to hit a big home run and drive the ball. Impact the ball is, is the word of the day or the phrase of the day that we heard Aaron Boone use you know, in terms of making the switch to Peraza in last night's game. He's looking for somebody who can impact the baseball. And this is something James Smythe and I have been talking about for a long time when we analyze the state of the game and certainly postseason baseball that, you know, impacting the baseball matters in postseason, hitting home runs matter, uh, generally speaking. And uh, that's why. I think Donaldson's probably still in there and probably will remain in there because he can impact the baseball. And, you know, Isaiah kind of Falefa is more of a, a speedster, a high contact guy. They love his range defensively. He certainly can handle third base was a gold Glover there in, in past years. So 
you know, if you need that skill set, then certainly he's there for you. But I think this, this is a, a you know, an off season or a postseason where you're looking at guys who can impact the baseball. Tanner Falefa is probably a better third baseman than he is a shortstop, as it would be for many players. Anything you might gain in contact is probably not worth the defensive downgrade at the very least. And throughout the year, Donaldson has at least brought you good defense at third base and you live with the bat. Coney, you said, hey, maybe you can run into one and, and impact the baseball. That's true. If the Yankees had a better alternative at third base, maybe you try it. But I don't think it's worth rolling the dice with uh, Kiner Falefa over at third. I agree. You hope for the best with Donaldson at the plate. The defense is too valuable to uh, to make the switch at this point with with Josh Donaldson. All right, game one. Uh, the vibe I feel like everyone was getting was that the Yankees were trying to steal out with the game tied at one in the sixth inning. That was the phrase that was going around. They were trying to steal this game, steal outs when really it was a 50-50 shot in the sixth inning. Clark Schmidt, good pitcher, though I think could have a high ceiling here. But was that a spot he should have been in? I really don't have a problem with, with the bullpen management at all, to tell you the truth. And Carpenter in the lineup. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of second guessers out there that, you know, that say, well, Carpenter hasn't had any at-bats in a long time or that Clark Schmidt, you know, that, that wasn't the right spot for him. I think it was. You, you've got to have other guys get outs. The, the bullpen came into the series, you know, really worn out, really overtaxed. So you really got to find out, you know, and, and Aaron Boone used the, the phrase trying to carve out some roles for some guys down there. Well, Clark Schmidt's the next guy. He had a really good year for the Yankees. He's a strikeout pitcher. Uh, people say, well, what about Domingo Herman? Well, Domingo Herman is a middle reliever or a starter. He doesn't have, he doesn't profile as a swing and miss guy. In fact, his numbers are more of a ground ball guy or a guy that, that relies on putting the ball in play than missing bats. Clark Schmidt's profile was missing bats because of his spin on his breaking ball. All of his stuff is across the board well above average, his spin rates, the shape of his breaking stuff, his slider and his curveball profile is perfectly in that role that he was used in. So it didn't work out. Uh, he's been a couple of pitches, a couple of sliders away from really having two having scoreless outings. He's two pitches away. So you need to have him. Uh, if not him, then who else? I mean, Trevino and Clark Smith are very similar in terms of their sliders and their profiles. So uh, and, and Montas as well. I mean, the fact that Marinaccio was not on the roster left an opportunity to carve out a role for Frankie Montas. You had to find out about these guys. You had to put Carpenter in the lineup to find out if he can do it or not. He's too valuable. He can run into one and hit a big three-run home run. You had to put him in there to, to know or, or not whether he could do it. The same with Montas. Montas could have could have been could be a, a guy with his type of power stuff that could be a swing and miss guy out of the bullpen. You had to find out whatever they saw on his side session seemed to really encourage them. Encourage Jaron Boone talked about that's the Frankie Montas we, we saw when, you know, in, in the workout. So, you know, that's, that's why you threw him out there and you had to find out it was one pitch, you know, the, the home runs that Clark Schmidt and that Montas gave up in that game weren't the problem. The problem was the offense. You were only going to score one run. So we can, we can split hairs about bullpen management. But bullpen management wasn't, wasn't the problem there. The problem was not getting Verlander early in that game when you had second, third, and you did need some contact. A ground ball would have got you the second run. You could have got two or three runs off of Verlander early. That was the game before he settled in. And 
if you had a 3-1 lead against Verlander in the middle innings, that changes the entire dynamic of the future bullpen management. Now, Clark Schmidt, one thing that I thought was a little questionable was that he was the first guy out of the bullpen after Jamison Tyone with a runner at second and one out in the fifth. Thought maybe that's a spot for Lou Trevino, maybe more of a high leverage guy. Now, Schmidt ends up getting the double play to get out of the inning. Then you have six, seven, eight, nine coming up in the bottom of the sixth. Once Schmidt's in there, you have Trevino warming up getting ready to face Jose Altuve and all the big guns at the top of the order. So Trevino's there for a higher leverage spot. 1-1 one, one in the sixth against the bottom of the lineup, which is very weak for the Astros, for all the talk about the Yankees lineup falling off a cliff. The Astros are in a very similar boat with their offense. So I have no problem with leaving Schmidt in to face the lower level guys and then bringing in Trevino for the, for the more important bats in, at the top of the order there. Frankie Montas, the game's already 3-1. And frankly, it would, it would have been a waste to bring in your higher leverage guys down 3-1 in the, in the seventh and eighth inning. You can't use these guys every day. And this was really the first time that the Yankees trailed by a, a couple runs late in a game like that. So using Montas in that spot, maybe that could have been Domingo Herman instead. But you're not going to be using Holmes or Peralta in those, in those situations anyway. So I feel like once it's three, one, I feel like people underestimate or overestimate a team's ability to come back and win games that late against an elite bullpen. And one more thing on Carpenter, Coney, you mentioned that the, the Yankees are short. They are, there's no DJ Mayhew. There's no Andrew Benintendi that the, who would be the other option to be on the Yankees bench uh, in, in this, in these two games, is it Marwin Gonzalez? Is that someone that you're going to trust to be pinch hitting late in games? In bottom line, the Yankees are looking short through the first two games, whether it's on the bench with the carpenter situation with the bullpen, look, they're, they're not going to win the world series with their starting pitcher and their big three or four out of the bullpen. You need to find out who else can contribute and, and get big outs on the mound. So if you are of the thinking that it's the, the starting pitcher and then you're living and dying with the, the big, you know, big three, so to speak in the arms, they're, they're the three that you have at the moment because others are, are injured. They've pitched well, but overall, you, you know, there's a reason why the roster size is what it is because you need contributions from everybody. It's what the Yankees have been saying this entire season. It's going to take the room. That's not a exaggeration. You're going to need outs from other people. Justin Verlander on the mound here. What allowed him to be so mistake-free once he settles in? Because that's a theme with Verlander. Even at the age he's at, it feels like the best time to get to Verlander is going to be in the beginning. And then once he gets locked in in his lane, it's cruise control. How does he settle in so well? Well, I think he, he just, he, he's, he reads bats and adjusts on the fly as well as anybody. And that's where experience comes in. You know, you can, you can read every scouting report. You can have the best information from scouting reports from analytics departments about what the hitters weaknesses are about which pitch to throw and every count, every one, one count against this particular hitter, this pitch as you gives you the highest probability of success. You can have all that information, but Justin Verlander's old school. He's reading the bats. He's reading his own stuff. He's the guy that can get a feel for a certain pitch in an inning and then ride the wave with that pitch. And for me, 
he got his curveball going again. It was the old Justin Verlander, the the twelve to six curveball. He really got working. That's what he sort of uh, worked over Matt Carpenter with down and in. He didn't miss location with it. It is so hard to read because he does have a fastball that he can throw on the inside corner for a strike as well. So it was a great one-two punch. Every you know we we've said on this and you know and obviously this is a pitching uh, podcast. I will I've said all along even with Garrett Cole that. When you get hitters looking for off-speed stuff, the fastball in the inside corner is there. That's the obvious choice to go to. You have to own the inside corner with your fastball. Not only just pitch inside for show to push hitters off, but to double up in there and throw on the inside corner for strikes, especially when you've got good breaking stuff or good off-speed stuff, and you throw a lot of it, and hitters start to look for that off-speed stuff, that leaves the inside corner open. Justin Verlander understands that better than anybody. He employed that strategy so well to a T he didn't really even need to have scouting reports on hitters. It was his stuff pitching to his strengths. He had them on the defensive and then just that razor sharp. You have to understand too, that Verlander's release of the ball from almost seven feet off the ground. His window is different than everybody else's window in terms of release point straight up and down seven feet at the release point in the window off the table, curveballs, riding fastballs up and then paint throwing inside corners with his fastballs as well. So that's why he's a Hall of Famer. That's why he pitches to his strengths, and every hitter has to adjust to him. He's one of the 20 or 30 best pitchers of all time. And, David, you just said this is what's getting him to Cooperstown. He's, and he's also locked in now and this season. He's going to win his third Cy Young Award at age 39, coming off Tommy John surgery in his 17th big league season. This is, this is Justin Verlander, one of the best pitchers in the game at the top of his game. Sometimes it's, it's not on scolding the hitters. It's appreciating a remarkable performance by a great pitcher. Looking at game two, we touched on Framber Valdez. His success with the curveball goes seven innings, picks up the win. The Yankees made one mistake. And it was glaring from Luis Severino. One costly mistake for him. And I think it hurt because so many people watching kind of saw it in real time. It didn't take an expert to see this. Severino was getting generous outside strike calls against the right-handed hitters. And with two strikes, goes inside to Bregman, who hits a three-run homer. Do you, When you're seeing the strike zone kind of expand from the home plate umpire like that, how cognizant and how much do you have to maybe change your approach on the fly because you're seeing those generous gifts that you're receiving I, you know I, I, generous gifts you know I, I think nowadays is different than what i would consider a generous gift with uh, greg maddox pitching back in 1992 circa 90s or whatever is a little different but uh, yeah there was a little bit of margins off the plate at times in particular in that sequence so it's a valid question check um I really thought the key to the game was Martin Maldonado. It really is at bats all night long. He got hit. He was down 0-2. That's the part of the order where, you know, Severino was going to bury him. 0-2, just coming up and in. Maldonado almost even turned into it. That hit batter kind of set up that whole inning. If we're going to pick apart an inside fastball that was at 98 miles an hour, that Bregman had just happened to click, hit at 91 miles an hour, just beat him to the spot. Bregman, more than anybody, takes advantage of the home park there. He understands pulled fly balls and the Crawford boxes really work. That He works on it constantly. 
Uh, we see him in batting practice do that over the years. He is just tailor-made for that ballpark, and that's exactly what he did. Pulled his hands in, fastball on the inside corner. Now, yes, you could say, well, maybe it should have been a little bit more up. Maybe he should have thrown a fastball away. We're talking, we're parsing one pitch throughout the whole sequence that, you know, that's, that's just pulling your hair out. If you're a pitcher, it's one bad pitch. I don't even know if it was a bad pitch. It was inside corner. Maybe it was the wrong selection. Maybe it could have been executed a little bit better, but the bottom line was that the fact that you hit Maldonado, put him on base was the third run and the three run home run. And then also Jeremy Pena, not pitching him. Well, a guy who's got a, who's a free swinger, you know, to me, he's the key to the series too, as well. Yankees inability to bury the bottom of the order. Martin Maldonado in game two in, in particular was on base two or three times. And then Jeremy Pena is a free swinger. That's why Dusty Baker has him in the two hole so that he'll get better pitches to hit. You know, you, modern analytics would say Jeremy Pena should bat down the lineup that Bregman should be in the two hole. This is a Dusty Baker special. This is a human element, sort of a, 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 a lineup construction. And, and it's worked, but the Yankees approach against Pena has been all wrong. You got to get him to chase. You can't give him balls in the strike zone to hit. That's why, you know, he's only has 22 walks of the whole year and over 500 at bats. So, you know, they're, they're, the approach against Pena has been off too many good pitches for him to hit. You've got to get him to chase. He will, he doesn't want to walk. And he said too many pitches in the center of the plate to swing. So I don't, you know, you want to talk about the Bregman fastball in the inside corner. Okay. All right. Whatever. But for me, it's really about how the approach against Pena and then hitting Maldonado were, were the keys to that inning. And really, Maldonado's at-bats that night were the keys to the inning. Bregman's got a bit of solo shot, you know, for all, for all, for all intent and purposes. It was what happened in front of the home run to me that, 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 that's more important that I'd rather talk about. One of the objectives that they need to have going forward is getting Maldonado out because it resets the lineup. Then you have the big hitters out. There's no excuse to not being able to come through and keeping Maldonado off the bases. He's hurt them. And James, you're saying like the bottom of the lineup obviously was an issue for the Astros internally looking forward to obviously a weaker part of their overall team structure, but it's excelling here over the first two games. Right. And it's, it's like you said, it's inexcusable to have Martin Maldonado reach three times in a postseason game. And these are all professionals. The other guy's getting paid too, but he's in there for his glove. He's a defensive specialist. He's a wonderful defender and a handler of the pitching staff guiding this great Houston uh, pitching through. But Coney, you've mentioned that it should have been a solo homer. Maybe it could have been sequencing. We, a lot of times we'll get into things like cluster luck or, uh, or, or sequencing. Some one pitcher can, two pitchers in a game can put three guys on base. One guy goes, scatters three singles around. But if you have them all in the same inning, that you that way you can get the three-run home run. And the the inside pitch to Bregman, you can you can relitigate that all day long. But at the, the end of the day, Severino made a mistake pitch. Bregman is too good to uh, to to work around that, and you end up in a three-nothing hole. And another thing too, uh, giving up a three-run homer shouldn't be the end of the world. But the way Framber Valdez was going, that's all the Astros needed. All right, with the Yankees down 2-0 here to Houston, they have Garrett Cole on the mound in game three. David, you were in a similar situation in 96. Obviously, that was the World Series against the Braves. This is the ALCS. But you, you toss six quality innings to lead the Yankees to a win in game three. What advice do you give to Garrett Cole as he takes the mound for game three Saturday night? 
just win the game. You know, I mean, it, it, this seems like we've seen this movie before, right? Where you, there's an LCS where the, uh, the home field advantage kind of held, held serve. The Yankees win three in a row now, and then you go back to Houston, you got to win one game in Houston. So, uh, yeah, just win one game. When you're in a seven-game series and you lose the first two, the momentum changes just on one game. Just win one game. If you get to two to one, now the series looks entirely different. You've got Nestor Cortez following that up. And the next thing you know, you can get right even again at 2-2 in the middle three games, obviously, of a seven-game season, seven-game set at Yankee Stadium. Uh, Garrett Cole, dominant, be dominant, do what you do. Establish your fastball, go right after them, keep your pitch count down, be as economical as you can, get as deep in the game as you can. But nonetheless, you've got help this time as opposed to last time in Cleveland. You're coming off an off day. Your bullpen's going to be rested. So whatever needs to happen can happen in the latter innings as far as matchups go. But if you're Garrett Cole, continue on this postseason that you're having that is really uh, a signature moment in your Yankee career, in your prime. This is what we were calling for before the season even started, really, with Garrett Cole. He needs your signature moment. He's already had that. He's, he's, on, he's got his hands around the throat of a signature postseason. The, the, continue it. That's all you're doing. You know, you're at your top of your game. You're confident. You're throwing the ball well. Keep the ball in the ballpark. Get Jeremy Pena off the bases. Get him to chase that knuckle curve down and in. That's the one guy that I think the approach has been a little bit off. Now, maybe it's not so much throwing the wrong, wrong pitches. It's about the execution with Pena, batting in the two-hole. Get him out. Get him to chase. And that way you're facing some of the big hitters, you know, with nobody on base. So you don't give up, they don't have a chance to give up a three-run home run. So, yeah, bury the bottom of the order. Have a better approach against Pena. And really, the Yankees have pitched the big boppers very well. Mm -hmm. Altuve, Alvarez, with the exception of Bregman's one swing. Uh, they've done a pretty, pretty good job against, against some, some really quality hitters. The Astros had a significant advantage, starting pitching-wise, going into the two games in Houston. The Yankees have the advantage in games three and four. The Astros had their top two set up for the beginning of the series. The Yankees have their top two set up for games three and four, and you're coming back home. So the Yankees are in a good spot to even this series. And when you're trying to come out of a two nothing hole, David did it in 96. That game three, if you're asking teams, players, executives, managers all around the league, if you're trying to pick one pitcher, in baseball to take the ball in a seven game series down two nothing. Garrett Cole is at or near the top of the list. So the Yankees are in a good spot there. The Yankees have had four comebacks from a two nothing deficit in the best of seven. And for the four comebacks all started with a big game in game three, 1956 world series. You had Whitey Ford, 1958, Don Larson, 1978, Ron Guidry and 1996 with David. So this is the right guy to have on the mound in this spot. One other thing that we, we didn't cover when we previewed this series and something that's been on my mind, and I'm, David, I'm wondering what your thought here. What has changed with Garrett Cole's demeanor since he gave up that home run to Alex Verdugo in that late September start where he kind of blew up the strike call? We've seen a change in Garrett Cole since then, I feel. Do you think the same? It looks like his demeanor has been really good on the mound, very much under control. I mean, everybody who's seen him pitch sort of remarks the same thing of how even keeled he looks out there. 
you know, how much under control his delivery looks that he slowed himself down. Jeff Nelson, who's, who's been on the road during, during, for the S network and pre and post game has, has noted that, that he looks different, really slowing the game down a little bit in terms of his rhythm and his tempo. So yeah, it's noticeable what's going on. I don't know. I mean, I think there you have to sort of, you know, with Garrett Cole, you, you let the past go. And, you know, he was trying to figure out fever, fever, uh, feverishly that, you know, why he was giving up so many home runs. And that's the type of guy he wants to know, you know, he wants to dissect everything. You know, what's happening? Is this a sequence of pitches? Am I throwing the wrong pitches? Is it, is it a matter of execution? Why did I give up so many home runs? And why was this continuing to happen to me? At some point, you got to let that go. And maybe attribute part of it to var- random variants. Part of it, you know, there's some years where I gave a bunch of a bunch of home runs or pitchers on on staffs. It was your we joke with each other. It's your year this year. You know, you got the home run bug. You know, something something's going on there, where there's there's a random variance, a craziness to this game where, in certain years, more fly balls leave the ballpark than others. You know, and, and it's it's hard to explain. And at some point, you just got to let it go. And I think Eric Cole finally let it go. It's like. Let me stop trying to figure out why I'm giving up all these home runs. My stuff is good. I still set a franchise record for strikeouts in a season. All my other numbers are really good other than the home run per fly ball rate and the overall number of home runs that I gave up. You know what? I'm okay. And, and, and my stuff is still good. So let's just forget about that part of it and, and move on. And it looks like that's what he's done. All right, game three tomorrow night, uh, Saturday night at Yankee Stadium, Yankees and Astros, Houston up 2-0 in that series. NLCS game three tonight, series tied at one, Philly won game one, two zip, Padres rally to win game two, eight to five, San Diego kind of cracked Aaron Nola in the fifth inning of that game two. And now they have Joe Musgrove pitching in game three against Rangers Suarez in Philadelphia, a place that is going to be wild for game three. Which team should feel better about itself heading into this third game. I think they both feel good. You know, this is a great series because there are tremendous superstars in this series. Some of the best in our game uh, that were built for this short series. You know, that's the Padres that made all those trades to get Soto over here and the the trade deadline lit up the world, the baseball world, Phillies signing, I mean, signing uh, Bryce Harper, the money they put into it, Schwarber. All these guys are hitting. All these superstars are playing well. This is great. This is a great matchup. Both teams should feel good about it. And both teams have their stars clicking. You know, Machado's great. Even Bell uh, is swinging the bat better on the Padres side. I think the Padres feel pretty good about the way they're swinging the bat. Drury got thrown in there, came up big for them, a trade acquisition. And then, of course, you know, on the Philly side, uh, they look pretty good. And your best player, one of the best players of his generation, swinging the bat again well, finally, coming around Bryce Harper. So what a matchup superstars showing up. They're all playing. Well, this is a great series. Normally I totally say Philly because you're the road team going into the series. You take a game in San Diego, you get your split there and now you're coming home for three games and it's going to be a madhouse. Having said that in this spot, I think it's San Diego. Philly was up four, nothing in game two. They really should have had a stranglehold on this series and taken a 2-0 lead back home. San Diego's got to be feeling like, hey, we came back and stole a game. And most importantly, they have Joe Musgrove on the mound in game three to take control of the series back. And all, all three of us are really high on, on Joe Musgrove and for a potential momentum swinging game three. I love 
for the Padres that he is on the mound for them here and, and trying to continue what's been a really good postseason for him. Uh, we mentioned some of the hitters, Josh Bell, Brandon Jury, and Juan Soto. Again, could only take a moment for things to change your, your postseason. Those three went six for 13 with six RBIs in game two in San Diego. Soto coming up with the big moment as well. That could be all it takes for a guy like Juan Soto to start a tear here. So that's something to watch for as we get going with game three tonight between these two teams. It's um, it's interesting how you look at these final four teams and you could say what you want about Presley and the Astros obviously has been performing really well. But when you think about the Padres and how they right now arguably are the only team left with absolutely zero questions about their closer. That's thanks in part to the way Josh Hader's rebounded here. How dangerous does that make the Padres with Hader seemingly so locked in? That's a great point, Jack. I mean, if you're the Padres, it's sort of like you've been waiting since the trade deadline for all these pieces to kind of click in. And uh, Hader struggled, obviously, for a while there and to the point of, where they kind of went back to the drawing board. I remember I was out there on Sunday night baseball and they had him out there early with the high speed cameras and then the rep Soto machines and trying to figure it out. And, you know, that's such a big part of uh, modern pitching now. I mean, you're throwing on the bullpen, you're looking at the iPad, you got rep Soto working. What's my horizontal vertical break. Where's my release point, high speed cameras, analyzing the spin, every pitch he would throw and go right to the technology and look at it. And they figured it out, figured out something with his release point. They also figured out with his usage that he's better off just one inning at a time, uh, that he, he's a creature of habit, that he kind of got overworked a little bit, and he, he doesn't do as well when he doesn't know exactly when he's coming in the game. So uh, they kind of figured out the right formula and, and, and got him solved, and that is huge for them. I mean, he looks better than ever. Uh, the, if you're San Diego, you feel really good. That's an exciting team to watch. Everybody's there now. You know, the, the whole, everything you expected is kind of coming together. This is your team with the exception, obviously, of Fernando Tatis Jr., who's supposed to be right in the middle of it. it was a big disappointment with his drug test positive. So, uh, but everybody else, this is exactly how they drew it up. On the Philly side, same thing. God, you got to feel good about it. You know, in the middle of the season, you don't have good enough defense. You know, there's a poorly constructed team. Oh, by the way, we can bash, and we're all here, and we're all swinging the bat now, and they figured out their bullpen. And they've got good pitching themselves, and their top two starters are as good as anybody. This is what Philly was built for to win. That's what Dumb. This is what Dombrowski built. This is the, what he envisioned, and they're all sort of working now. And that's why I love this National League side in this series. Superstars, designs, working. It's clicking all at once, and this is what we get. We get we get this beautiful series tied up one to one, and and superstars playing. I can't wait to watch the games. See if Bryce Harper goes deep. See what Juan Soto does. You know, the list goes on and on. Mike Machado, it, it, it's just a fantastic matchup uh, with, with superstars up and down. Superstar shining in the NLCS, power pitching center stage in the ALCS. So you have game three of the NLCS coming up tonight. Game three of the ALCS on Saturday night at Yankee Stadium. Uh, the three of us, we, we kind of go as the Yankees go with our various ro- roles for uh, the Yankees and, and broadcasting with the Yes Network, the organization. So we'll uh, we'll look to put something out as well. Hopefully, if the uh, the series shifts back to Houston for uh, a Game Six, and if anything happens in between there, 
really noteworthy. We'll hop on for, for another episode. So that'll wrap it up for this one for our great producer, Dan Rourke, for David, for James, for myself, Justin. This is uh, making October pretty exciting here. Big things on the line for the Yankees. Let's see if they step up on Saturday night in the Bronx. That's going to do it for this episode of Tone of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, presentation of John Boy Media. Enjoy the games, everyone.